Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. In the studio this morning, we have Dr. G Spot. Morning, G. Good morning, Nurse EpiPen. Lovely to be with you. We've got Dr. Kate DeBoer. Morning, Kat. Kat, sorry. Kat. And we've got Panel Beta and moi. So, um, and a big hello to Dr. Mal, who's let the chickens run the show, because uh, he's producing a play. And um, anyway, I won't give it's it a plug. 2022 version of Shakespeare, I've heard. Yes, it's it's, not, it's a it's it? epic. Have you are you going to see it? I will. Oh, good. Will. Yeah, I'm going to go and see it. Um, it's cold and yucky, and the bugs are alive in this with the sound of music in Melbourne, Excellent. and. Um, a, I'm just going to check in with everybody. How are you, Cat? Uh, Cat. <laughs> I'm good, thank you. How are you, Nurse EpiPen? I'm good too. G-Spot? Never better, Nurse EpiPen, and looking forward to a fantastic show. Oh, boy, are we challenged today. We've got a ring-in, we've got a Zoom, and we've got a live guest. I, it, it really is a multimedia experience Isn't for it? everyone listening. We are so clever. We are. <laughs> okay, so today the theme of our show is trauma both physical and psychological. And our three guests are Chris, who's going to ring in in a few minutes, um, and she's a survivor of a bad car accident. We've got P- Professor Belinda Gabby, who's joining us via Zoom, and we've got Kat DeBoer, who's sitting right beside us in the studio. So to tell you more about our esteemed guests, Professor Gabby is the head of the Pre-Hospital Emergency and Trauma Research Unit at, in the School of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Monash University. She is an Australian Research Council Future Fellow. Her research focuses on evaluating trauma care, trauma systems research and improving understanding of the burden of injury. Professor Gabay is the head of the Victorian State Trauma Registry, the Victorian Orthopaedic Trauma Outcome Re- Outcomes Registry, and small feathers to her hat, the Burns Registry of Australia and New Zealand. Wow. I know. She's pretty... She's a busy person. And very switched on. Mm. And Dr. Kat DeBoer is a research psychologist at Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre. Kat studied, I'm assuming psychology, at Swinburne and has just submitted her PhD in clinical psychology titled Integrated Internal Family Systems Therapy into a Phase-Based Approach for Complex Trauma. It's a mouthful. That is a long title. Um, We'll ask Kat for the short title. It'll get an acronym for sure. (laughs) She's published research regarding the barriers women with complex trauma histories face when accessing treatment and a paper proposing the use of phase-based approach for complex trauma in Australia. She's passionate about working with people who've experienced trauma and experienced body image issues and disordered eating. Whew. Big, big, We've got some big guns big on today, guns, have we can. ever? <laughs> so I thought I'd just start up with a bit of catch-up because this is um, something that um, I'm passionate about. But does anybody know what month it is in the health calendar? 
I do not know, Nurse EpiPen. Pet. Oh. oh. I wish I did. And it <laughs> gets a whole month. Well, that's fantastic. It yeah. obviously deserves a lot of weight. Well, it does. So it's July is the month for sarcoma. Oh. So having, su- having survived a sarcoma, mm. chest wall sarcoma, I'm a bit passionate about this. Yeah. So not many people know about it because it is rare. Mm. So um, And they, they can develop in the muscle, bone, nerves, yeah. cartilage, tendons, blood vessels and the fatty and fibrous tissues. Goodness me. They're commonly affecting the arms, legs and trunk. Mine was on my trunk. Mm. And they also appear in the stomach and intestines as well as in the behind the abdomen mm. and sadly in re- female reproductive organs. Mm. So the, there are three main kinds of sarcoma, soft tissue sarcoma, bone sarcoma, you've probably heard of osteosarcoma mm. in the bones, and gastrointestinal stromal tumours, okay. GIST. That's, that's very rare. Yeah. So in 2021, it's estimated that there were 2,035 new cases of soft tissue sarcoma diagnosed in Australia, slightly more in men, and the risk is 1 to 149 risk of developing sarcoma by the age of 85. Mm. So if you have or know of somebody who's had a sarcoma, and Mm. it's a pretty scary diagnosis, Mm. um, there's a support group, um, Facebook support group, it's called the Sarcoma Support Group, and Peter Mac is always a great place to go to for all their fabulous psychological supports and treatments mm. and, um, so, yeah, help over at Peter Mac. Thank you for sharing your experience, Nurse Effie Penn, and it's wonderful that you're with us telling us about it today. Yeah, well, you lived through me having it. I remember, yeah. Yeah, yeah very scary, as you said. And, and you mentioned a Facebook group there. Is there anywhere else people should look if they're looking for support or want to donate or anything like that? Um, I couldn't find anything else, but I'm mm. sure there are. Yeah, maybe hit up Peter Mac. Yes, Yes, yeah. and, and Google away. Indeed. Yes, yes. Great cause. Yeah. So um, now I'm thinking you might have something interesting for us, <laughs> Professor oh, G-Spot. I always do. Let's be professors pen. today. I, I love the promotion. <laughs> Did you hear that, Monash? Pay <laughs> me accordingly. Um, so Nurse EpiPen and Kat, are you guys afraid of anything? Do you have any phobias? Uh, heights and open water. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Kat. Let's um let's go on holiday together. And uh, Nurse EpiPen, what I about have, you? I've developed heights. Oh, so it's I a did. more recent thing. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah with the with um older age. So yeah. um I wasn't so much, but even going on a bicycle across bridges yeah, when there's wow. a big fall, I've gone. Oh, look ahead! Look ahead! Yeah. So can you have late onset phobias? Uh, you can have phobias onset at any time <laughs> in life. Mine is turning into radio. No, I'm just kidding, audience. Um, <laughs> so I'd love to tell you about some brand new research by Lacey et al. Published in the Journal of, I should say, the Australian New Zealand Journal of Psychiatry very recently. And they were looking at phobias in uh, flying, needles, oh. heights, <laughs> Spiders and dogs. (laughs) So they chose these five specific phobias and said, hey, if you're um, scared of these things, come join our trial. So it was done in New Zealand, 126 people. And the intervention that they looked at is something that's very dear to my heart and I'm very interested in is a virtual reality uh, using an app on your phone, but also using a headset. 
so people could see the things that they were scared of. And in psychology, when we're treating people for specific phobias, we tend to use something called graded exposure, which means gradually getting used to the feared stimulus in a very step-by-step -step way. So I wouldn't say, for example, tell you, Penny, to go to the Westgate Bridge um, <laughs> to just test out your fear of heights. We might look at a picture of the Westgate Bridge first up and then gradually get closer to it. But what they found was that this virtual reality system was really, really helpful because, as you can imagine, if you have a fear of flying, we can't just be jumping on planes all the time to test that out, particularly during <laughs> the pandemic. So they were able to simulate people pretending that they flying or simulate spiders, not just going to the zoo and grabbing a tarantula. And they had really, really positive outcomes. And I think this is really going to be the start of personalised medicine, particularly from a psychological perspective, because as you can imagine, with that virtual reality, you can program whatever fear it is that people have. So say if they're scared of purple clowns, you can, <laughs> you can program the virtual reality app to show purple clowns. So I think this will be a very, very cool tool for the future for um, treating phobias. And when was it developed? Just recently, just this past year, they were oh, tested. Well, I should say 2021. App. Yeah. App. <laughs> there, there are a lot of mental health apps, I've got to say, but um, look out for ones that have that research-based evidence before you start using them. Mm, I've helped a patient with a needle phobia. That's fantastic. Yeah, she came in and shivered and shaked and yeah. distraction and her mum was there mm -hmm. and... We almost had the needles ourselves to show. Yeah, <laughs> but, exactly. But we eventually coaxed her and got her to have her vaccines yeah. for preventing some serious infections. Absolutely. So, I mean, vaccination is so important at the moment. So I think this virtual reality app can be fantastic for people of any age who are concerned about needles rather mm. than just turning up there on the day and freaking out, which, of course, happens and isn't a great experience. Mm. Mm. And they've got a great program at Children's Hospital in the paediatric units around the world, actually. Mm. And some or children with autism have a lot of difficulty of with course. injections. Mm. And some of them might need a light sedation in yeah. order to have it. But yeah. I wonder how apps with ch children... Would, do you think Absolutely. this app, would, was this age group quite varied? Well, they tested adults in this study, but we certainly know you can use this kind of strategy with children very effectively. Mm. Great. So I think it'll be absolutely the future, doing more virtual reality work, having your goggles on with your psychologist. Nice. Yeah, that, to bring it to the trauma topic, I've yeah. um, heard some research, particularly in America, with veterans mm -hmm. and military personnel and doing um, exposure therapy yeah, with virtual VR. reality yeah. to treat trauma and trauma memories. Oh, it's, it's going to be the future, Dr. Cat. Yeah. So I cannot wait for us to do more of this exciting work. Yeah. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. On the phone we have Chris, who has kindly given up her time to share a pretty scary story with us about a car accident that she was involved in. So would you like to talk to us about that, Chris? Sure, okay, sure. Um, thanks for the opportunity to have a chat this morning. Um, I guess it's five years since um, our accident now, just over five years, So, um, and I'm pleased to say I'm feeling way, way better. Um, but we were just driving along, minding our own business on a lovely sunny Saturday afternoon on our way to Shepparton when a um, car that 
but I actually didn't see the car, but Tony was driving and um, the car had appeared to stop, like, just, you know, see us. And then as we approached the car, it, this car pulled out in front of us to cross over a double lane um, highway. And um, Tony swore and I looked up and um, it was like hitting a green wall. And the car, we shunted that car probably 30 to 40 metres down the road and then we tumbled and rumbled and airbags and all that sort of thing. And when we come to a stop, because we hit at a very high speed, and when we come to a stop, a voice come over our car, because we were travelling in a, in a BMW, and a voice come over saying, it's BMW Connect here, we've... Um, we've believe you've been in an incident, how many people in the car, et cetera, et cetera, just, you know, deployed everything for us. And that person then stayed on the phone with me until the ambulance arrived because Tony was out of the car um, and I couldn't get out. So so that was pretty amazing. That was probably something that helped me immensely. And I had a fractured sternum. Um, I had, uh, well, I didn't, I mean, at the time I knew I'd done something pretty serious, but it was pretty sore. And, I, and an injury to my back and injury to my hip and, and my neck as well. So, and being an old trauma nurse that I am, I um, I thought for sure this was the end of my life and couldn't find my own pulse. Um, but anyway, the lady kept talking to me and reassuring me that you know help was on its way. So it was pretty, it was pretty scary, it, it, very scary in fact. So I thought my, my days had come to an end, um, and I was really worried about Tony because I, I thought for sure he must be really injured but he just would soldier on and I thought for sure he was going to drop on me out of the car um so then we we you know got help arrived and that you know tow trucks and ambulances and all the rest of it and I was transferred to the local hospital and then to the Austin and um there was whether I was going to be having surgery on my back or be put into a frame so they chose to put me in a frame for three months and um, then three, I guess things got really hard once Tony went back to work and the frame came off me. I was like just, I had to rebuild my whole um, strength. Um, it was, yeah, it was loads and loads of um, physio and I guess swimming, everything, lots, of, lots and lots of physio and treatments and um, changed our lives. And you really, I was... You were at home yeah, by this stage? Yeah, I was at home at this stage. By yeah. yourself? Yeah. Yes. With your that partner was, coming home at the end of the day? Yeah, and I was like a puppy waiting at the door for him. I was, just, I was so lonely. It was just my life just changed absolutely um, radically. So I was like a really busy person, as you know, Ken, and um, national role in in a job that wasn't like work. It was, it was like what I loved. I just loved it, doing it. I was... It wouldn't be, you know, I'd be in three states within a week um, for, for everyone on the aeroplane, lots of overseas travel. Um, I was, you know, I, I, we'd run 10 kilometres most days, so I was really fit and healthy and um, my life was kind of exciting. And I was involved in a health leadership program and I was two-thirds of my way through a doctorate. And then I basically, from the accident on, or probably when Tony went back to work, I think that was the hardest when I was on my own. I just lost identity. I couldn't see myself as the person with these injuries. Um, and work was super important to me. Um, I have a little sister that's totally blind and, and disabled that I'm, I'm sort of her advocate. So it didn't just disrupt our lives. It disrupted others' 
around us. That's, I think that's a very well. important point, isn't it, Chris? And what about yeah. pain? Were you, did you go into a sort of a chronic pain Ah, uh, yeah, pain was situation. dreadful. And, yeah, pain was terrible. Um, but I was, you know, I tried not to take, you know, I didn't, all those awful stories about too much pain relief. So I tried not to do that. I, I tried to mentally deal with things. Um, but when it got too much for me, of course, I would have to take um, lots of different pains and lots of different medications to try and stop all the inflammation. So, yeah, the medicine was it was awful, actually, awful, awful time, awful time trying to get things balanced and get myself balanced and know who I was. Chris, I think uh, that, yeah. that's, that I mean, that's an incredible life. story and I think you've famously set the scene for our show today. More in the, You've covered both the physical and the psychological issues of trauma in a car accident setting and um, thank you for your courage to talk to us about this on air. And I really appreciate it. So thanks, Chris. No problem, Tom. That's great. I honestly think seeking help uh, for anyone that goes through trauma, seeking help and support from professionals is majorly important for your success of, of getting better. So, And you're suggesting psychological support there, is that correct? Yes, yep. absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I'm sure I'm back to where I am because of my... Um, my, my wonderful trauma psychologist. Oh, good plug. Excellent to hear. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Take no care worries, and um, yep. see you soon. Okay. Thank okay. you. Bye. Okay. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. <laughs> okay, so I think we've got um, Belin- Belinda on the Zoom. Belinda, can you hear us? I can, I can hear you. It's been really interesting so far. Oh, good. I think you think I think you would know one of those stories quite well from Chris. Wouldn't oh, you? Chris's story is all too familiar to me, I'm oh. afraid. Very sad. So, Belinda, why don't we kick off and say <clears throat> or ask you a little bit about yourself. What's your background and how did you get into this interesting work? Yeah, look, I, um, I'm a physiotherapist by background. I largely worked in sports medicine and rehabilitation and did a PhD at the University of Melbourne in sports injury epidemiology. Um, so my PhD was about football players. But while I was writing up my PhD, I was asked to come to Monash University um, to work on a trauma project. Um, and I started that probably in about uh, late 2002, and I've been there ever since. It's just been such a fascinating area that um, sort of sports injury and sports medicine fell by the wayside, actually gave up clinical practice and have really dedicated the last 20 years to looking at uh, trauma research and trying to improve the outcomes for people exactly like Chris um, and really extending the data that we collect to get a really good understanding of how well people recover how long that takes and what actually helps their recovery. Is there a working diagnosis of trauma? Uh, not uh, trauma itself. So injury, injury is an incredibly diverse condition. I think that's the thing that people forget. I mean, you're talking about everything from cutting your finger, you know, on a paper cut, all the way to things that we know where we consider really quite severe, like traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury, but there's a whole continuum in between. Um, and the interesting thing about injury is you don't just get it once. Um, people are injured multiple times in their lifetime. And even um, for our trauma registries, we pick up people who come to hospital. 
uh, with injury and our major trauma registry is looking at people who are quite severely injured and there are definitions around that so it's there are sort of continuums and cut points along that continuum that tell us how severely injured people are but it's a really really diverse area to work in. And why do we have V-Storm? Why do we have a trauma registry? Well, the state trauma registry has been around for more than 20 years. In the late 1990s, there was a lot of interest in how we managed trauma patients um, and the emergency and trauma care within the state. There was a lot of research coming out saying our care in Victoria was not particularly good. Um, There were lots of errors being made that were life-threatening. Um, So there was a huge ministerial review at the time that involved lots of clinicians, politicians, everyone really sort of redesigned the way we deliver trauma care in this state and they developed the state trauma system and they really had the good idea that if you're going to invest all of this money and and make this huge change, that the best thing to do would be able to monitor what the impact of that would be and that's how the state trauma registry came about. And when the registry started, it was predominantly focused on whether people survived their injuries or didn't survive their injuries. And my role um, when I came to work with the registry um, in the early 2000s was to extend that so that we could actually figure out how well people recovered from their injuries, how well they survived or the quality of their survival. And as part of a registry, where do you get your um, cases from? So the cases for the state trauma registry come from everywhere. So any trauma receiving hospital in the state. So there's 138 hospitals that contribute data to the registry. Uh, We also get data from the uh, paramedics, from the Ambulance Victoria. Uh, We also get information from the coroner's database. Um, And we follow up all of our patients. So everybody who survives um, their trauma Um, actually we follow them up at six months, one year and two years after injury to see how they're going. So that's where we get the information like um, Chris has shared today just to find out about whether they've got functional loss or pain or quality of life issues. Um, And when you find out that information, is there follow-up or linking to the services that they need? Yeah, so we feed that back into the trauma system. So our job is really about um, monitoring how well the trauma system functions and feeding that that information back to organisations that really provide those those rehabilitation and follow-up care for people. Um, And we feed it back to the hospitals as well. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's really important data from, from, you know, you, you just... It's just, it's such a complex recovery. What we've really been able to do, I think, which I'm particularly proud of, is we've been able to shift the belief that trauma is just an acute disease. So you have your injury, it heals, and therefore life is great after that, um, to understanding that it's actually much more chronic than that. And injury itself behaves like a chronic disease. And if it behaves like a chronic disease that goes on for a long period of time, we need to make sure that our care and our, um, our services that we provide to people actually extend for the time that they need them. And that's really been a huge focus of what we've been doing. Mm, that's really good. Um, what about the types of trauma? Have you got some epidemiological figures for us about what are the trauma, you know, what is are common injuries and not so common? And Yeah, so um, in the State Trauma Registry, uh, for some, which is our major trauma patients, about... Uh, 35 to 40% are from road traffic injury, um, about the same again uh, from low falls. And that's our growing industry, I have to say. Um, we're getting uh, our trauma population is changing over time. 
um, as our road infrastructure improves, the quality of our vehicles that we're travelling improve, as Chris talked about with the airbags and the, um, the automatic recognition um, of the vehicle to actually call emergency services, all of that's improving. What we're actually seeing is our big growth in our trauma is in older adults who are falling. Um, and they're actually taking up a bigger proportion of our trauma service uh, time and, and energy as well. Um, and about around about a third of our patients have a moderate or severe um, traumatic brain injury. So we're still getting quite a lot of people who are having um, quite significant brain injury within the state as well. Gosh, false. And would you like to comment, because I'm very acutely aware about men, more men, than women falling from ladders. Yeah, so uh, this is an interesting one. Uh, yeah, it's so major trauma itself is about seventy percent men and thirty percent women. Um, so men are nearly always overrepresented in young males, particularly nearly always overrepresented in um, trauma statistics. When we're looking at just orthopedic injury, it tends to be a, there tends to be a dichotomy of younger males and older women. So women live to older age and we fall over and break various bones. Um, but the, old, the latter issue is, um, is interesting because what we don't see is that it's not the people who climb ladders for a living um, as part of their work. <laughs> they're the people who are actually okay. They're not, they're not really um, heavily represented in our statistics. It tends to be our um, older adult males who are working on their homes, cleaning out their gutters, painting, doing those sorts of things, and they actually really have tragic outcomes a lot of the time. Um, a lot of them really get quite severe injuries, need to go to intensive care and have very long recovery timeframes if they survive. So what, is there not a public health message where we could advertise the dangers of climbing up ladders and things as public education? Yeah, this has actually been done before. We've um, been part of, we've worked with ourselves in the Monash University Accident Research Centre, have worked with the state government um, and have done quite a bit of work and put that out there. Um, and I think really we haven't seen a major continuing increase, so perhaps that public messaging is working. Um, but we did see a bit of a spike in high fall-related injuries during the pandemic um, with people at home. They were more engaged in doing activities at home. So all the things that people had put off um, because they were busy doing other things and were suddenly at home, they sort of started to do a bit more uh, uh, home renovations and a bit of, you know, do-it-yourself at oh, home yes. as well. And we saw a bit of a spike and we saw a drop in road trauma because people were not travelling mm. um, and a spike in high falls and low falls. Mm. Um, G-Spot's got a question for you. I do. I'm absolutely loving this interview, Belinda, and uh, I feel like I'm channeling Dr Malpractice here because I've got a wacky idea for you. <laughs> Just like Chris was saying, I'm wondering if we could have sensors on ladders that note when the person has fallen off, and I think Bunnings would support that. I reckon we should have a public service campaign at Bunnings because that's yeah, where everyone you know. goes for the DIY stuff. You yeah, get a sausage a sizzle and a message. Look, the best, the, you really, the best thing about in trauma is prevention altogether. So mm. if you can actually stop the fall, stop yep. the injury from ever <laughs> happening, then the person doesn't have to go through the life-changing event that comes afterwards. So I am all for anything that will stop the event from happening in the first place. 
And it's one of those things that really is multi-sectoral. It can't just be, you know, healthcare providers providing that message. It's got to be manufacturers. It's got to be retailers. It's got to be um, everybody engaged together to really sort of get a really good message across. And that's where road trauma is done so well mm. um, because it has involved multiple arms of government. It's involved the manufacturers of vehicles. We've developed much safer roads, much safer road infrastructure, um, but, you know, if we can apply that sort of principle to other areas in injury, we would actually make much, much better gains. And, you know, the best thing we can do is prevent injury from happening in the first place. And trauma systems actually consider that as well. It's prevention all the way through to recovery and getting back into the community. Mm. So you're saying that my Bunnings approach could potentially work? I say why not? I'm writing the grant now. Thank you, Belinda. <laughs> And what's what's happened? What do you, what's happened in the pandemic? What what happened with people and road trauma? Yeah, so when we went into first sort of the first lockdown, um, road trauma dropped right down. So um, serious injuries related to road trauma really took a massive dip, which is fantastic. You know, not sustainable, obviously, because we're back on the roads. But we saw a big drop in that. We saw a drop in violence, interpersonal violence, um, as. I, I can't comment so much on family violence because we don't get a lot of it actually in the trauma registry. Um, but there were some other sort of issues that arose for us in that um, with the way that the lockdowns were working and the variations between regional and, and um, regional Victoria and Melbourne, what we saw is a lower proportion of our major trauma patients coming through to the specialist trauma centres in Melbourne. And we actually sort of had a bit of a spike in our um, mortality rate as well related to that. Because the one thing that we do know in the trauma system is if you are managed in the specialist trauma centres, the Alfred, the Royal Melbourne, um, the Royal Children's Hospital, you're more likely to survive and you're more likely to better to have a better functional outcome as well. Mm, mm. Go ahead, Dr G. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks again, Professor EpiPen. Um, Belinda, I was just wondering, you were talking before about um, people being followed up, say, six months, a year later. I would imagine there'd be a variety of responses when you follow up with people, maybe some people thinking they just want to put it behind them, but others being, thank you for following up. I just w I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's really true. So some people are pretty keen to just, you know, share the information and get off the phone. They're doing well. Everything's mm -hmm. kind of okay. But um, some for some of our patients, that's the only contact they've had with the healthcare system since they've actually got out of the hospital. Wow. Um, and a big part of the interviewer's um, response is understanding that these people are in need and then tap, helping to tap them back into the system. So our telephone interviewers have a long list of services um, they have, you know, patient advocate numbers from the hospitals and things so they can actually help tap them back into the system. So it's not simply a collection of information from the patient. It's about understanding what's going on in their life and seeing if we can help tap them back in. We are not a clinical service per se. We are a registry. Um, but uh, but we do have, and because we've been doing this a really long time, we know the services that um, patients report to us are really good. Um, and we know um, sort of the advice that we can actually give people to sort of get them back on track again. But, yeah, it's a highly diverse. Um, we also do um, at regular intervals some fairly extensive qualitative research where pe people take part in really in-depth interviews. And we did a massive project called the Restore Project where we actually did, we followed up patients to five years after injury and then about 
Well, I can't even remember. It was about 150 patients who took part in really in-depth interviews at three years, four years and five years after injury. So we could really understand their recovery, what worked for them, what didn't work for them, what their experiences were. And it was just, it was absolutely just gold, the information that came in. And we've actually been able to use that to sort of help to develop new services. We've just evaluated a new model of allied healthcare at the Alfred Hospital, which has been shown to have massive impacts and actually be cost effective as well. Um, and all of the information that we've been gathering over time is helping us to um, guide and develop these new interventions that um, hopefully will result in better outcomes for patients. Fantastic work, Belinda. Thank you for sharing. Um, <clears throat> Belinda, one, some of the statistics that you've shown in the Vincent Storm report really, and you've mentioned it, showed this male 20 to 35 propensity what especially in car accidents and things what what's what can we do about this group this naughty scallywag male group <laughs> look i don't i mean it's not even about naughtiness um it's really about you know they're they're risk-taking they're pushing the boundaries they're testing the boundaries of life um, you know, men, uh, well, males are overrepresented right from the very young ages. It's not just, you know, um, not just in the teenage, adolescent, emerging adult time frame. Um, it's really, you know, look, it, it's really about um, that stage in their life where they really are testing the boundaries and understanding safety. There are lots of things, there are lots of interventions that are out there. There's a, um, a program that runs at a number of trauma centres called the Party Program, which is the Oh, God, I'm going to have trouble preventing alcohol-related trauma in youth. In I youth, think. that's correct. Yeah, that's, that's the right, right. acronym. Um, yeah, where um, groups of, uh, of uh, teenagers go through uh, the trauma centre and actually experience, uh, get to see what the emergency department looks like, you know, go through and talk to trauma patients as well to try and sort of encourage them to think better about how they take risk um, and the choices that they make along the way. Um so, you know, there are there are interventions in place to do that, but they're also at higher risk of um, uh, violence-related injury. They're also at higher risk of self-harm and, and the like. And there are different... The approach to preventing those is different um, depending on the type of trauma. Mm-hmm. Is um, self-harm recorded on the trauma registry? Yeah. yeah, we do, yeah. So the trauma registry picks up people who've... Um, what they call it's called intentional self-harm and it makes up in the major trauma patient population it's probably only around five percent of the cases which is good um but they are a real interest for us because their outcomes along with the interpersonal violence um the people who are injured in interpersonal violence aren't great and they obviously have and what we tend to find is they have much higher issues with pain and mental health outcomes afterwards. So there's there can be some mental health outcome um, issues before the injury, but also it's about how we identify the best approach to managing them after the injury as well. Um, and unfortunately, that group also tend to um, discharge against uh, against a medical advice. So they often leave the hospital earlier. They have lower rates of admission to inpatient rehabilitation, which means that they're getting lost from the system quicker. Um, so the time in the trauma centre is really important because that's the time to actually get on top of things, make sure that they've got follow-up um, prepared, make sure that they've got the access to services that they need. Um, and this new model of allied healthcare that we've been um, evaluating at the Alfred is the first time they've had really dedicated um, psychology services 
in the acute trauma centre, which is um, something that people have been crying out for and something also that Chris mentioned earlier. Mm, mm. Very, very good work. Um, so if you were to the listeners today, if you wanted to leave a message for um, people, you know, preventing trauma, do you have a sort of a, it's probably very hard to ask answer, answer <laughs> this, just be careful, but is there, a, you know, is there a message for us and the listeners? Look, yeah, it's a really, really hard one, Penny, just because of the incredible um, diversity in trauma, but in the reality, you know, there's a lot in our lives that are there to help protect us. Um, and so pushing back against those things, like not using your seatbelt, you know, um, those types of things are things that we really shouldn't, like the, these things are absolutely tried and tested. There's there for a reason, there are rules around them for a reason. So um, think carefully about uh, about sort of going against the grain is my advice, is that, um you know, we've we've set up these lovely systems. We they're everywhere. Like everywhere you look, in your house, um, you know, in your vehicle, out in the community, uh, things that are there to actually, you know, help keep us safe. But ultimately, it's an individual who needs to think about the choices they're making and what the implications of those will be. And I think people who know people who've been through severe injury and have seen the recovery of that probably think differently. And I've been working in this space for 20 years. There are things that I just do not do. I don't climb ladders. It's just my personal <laughs> choices. I am not going. Me so neither. Just, my campaign is not a step ladder, I'm not getting up it. It's, yeah, so there's just things that I just will not do. Um, but it's, it's really about, you know, enjoying life, but also understanding when you're taking risk and what the implications of those risks are. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a lovely summary. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Belinda. Thank Wonderful you. to share Thank your you. experience and brilliant work with us. And thanks so much for having me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Dr. Kat, thank you so much for joining us for your Radiotherapy Triple R debut. Thank you, Dr. Jesper. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> it's been quite the lead up, hasn't it, to our interview? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. Kat, almost Dr. Kat, yes. please tell us how you got into your field of research and clinical practice. Sure. Um, so I did a PhD uh, in clinical psychology at Swinburne. Um, and my PhD project looked at, or we examined the outcomes of a treatment, a phase-based treatment for women who've experienced complex trauma. Um, and I was particularly drawn to the trauma field, I think, or psychology initially, because I was sucked in, I have to admit, by the pop psychology or what, uh, I guess, wanting to read people's minds or they would say a comment and I could tell what happened in their childhood or thinking that I would get that ability. Um, <laughs> But as I stuck with psychology, I loved it more and more, particularly drawn to trauma treatment um, and understanding the experience and impact of trauma because I find that it intersects quite nicely with a lot of my perhaps social, um, political kind of views. Um, and so, yeah, just reading more, more and more, just, um, I don't know, can't think of a word to describe it, but I really get enthused about um, wanting to be in that space and contribute to treatment 
Amazing, Kat. I, I've, in our sort of chats beforehand, you mentioned a good-looking psychology teacher as well as being quite uh, inspirational too. <laughs> yes, um, that is my not the not the answer I rehearsed for my interviews to get into my degree. <laughs> but if I am being honest, yes, uh, an attractive psychology teacher did initially draw me into the the profession. So appearance matters, <laughs> hey. Are, are uh, we going to yes. get a name or that's a oh. shout out? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, better not. Okay, okay. <laughs> we'll wait for a subsequent interview, yeah. Nurse EpiPen. And you mentioned complex trauma yeah. in, in there, Kat. Just wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about how complex trauma differs from, say, other forms of trauma that we've sure. been chatting about. Sure. Well, I think I definitely want to acknowledge that what Chris and Belinda spoke about is that, um, that tra- those traumatic experiences are very complex. Mm. Um, But in the field of, I guess, psychology and clinical psychology and trauma treatment, complex trauma usually refers to experiences that are chronic, um, tend to happen in childhood and interpersonal in nature. So a typical example of that might be childhood trauma and childhood abuse, Mm. um, interpersonal family violence as well, and also perhaps chronic experiences that happen in um, wartime, um, capture and things like refugee um, experiences as well. Um, and that's not, yeah, to dismiss the complexities that is associated with other traumatic experiences, but, um, yeah, in this field, that's typically what complex trauma refers to. I could see just from our discussion before that a more acute trauma, like say, uh, Chris's example of a car accident could turn into complex trauma through those interpersonal dynamics that she was talking about. Yeah. And the psychological consequences that Mm. Chris mentioned as well was quite profound. And, um, Great to hear that psychology is now being incorporated and really highlighted in how that it can help recovery yeah, and yeah, treatment. Yeah. Absolutely. And you mentioned that you've done a PhD, yeah. Kat. Congratulations. Yes. Thanks, And you. I look forward to calling you officially Dr. Kat very yes. soon. But just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more. You talked about a phase-based approach, perhaps yeah. some of your key findings from sure. your PhD. Um, so I'm particularly keen on the phase-based approach um, because another, I think it coincides quite nicely with a um, another passion area of mine, I guess, would be um, creating accessible treatments for people who've experienced trauma because what we find um, and what you might already be aware of is that people who experience trauma are often at the intersection of perhaps difficulties socially, um, in socioeconomic and as I'm sure you are very aware, Dr. G-Spot, the uh, accessibility of psychological care for everyone really in Australia is, mm. I think, quite insufficient. Um, so I think the phase-based approach... <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to that, but keep going. <laughs> sure. So the phase-based approach um, takes advantage of the Medicare rebate system where you can get 10 group sessions rebated and 10, and more well now, 20 mm. individual um sessions rebated. So this is mental health care plans? Yes, that's through, it. For your GP? Yep, yep. So you can go to your GP um, and get a mental health care plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that really increased the, or what we find is that um, trauma treatment is long-term and does require a lot of mm-hmm. um, sessions and trying to take advantage to maximise the rebatable sessions um, is, I think, a great perk of these phase-based or this phase-based approach that we looked at so it was um 20 individual sessions cat and 10 group oh well at the time it was pre-pandemic that we set it up so yeah originally it was 10 group and 10 individual um and yet since the pandemic it's been increased to um, 20 individual 
which I think is ending in December, but I hope fingers very much continue out there listening, yes. uh, policy makers, decision makers, yes. please keep this on. It's been a fantastic initiative. Yeah. And I suppose, um, Kat, I, I don't know, in your experience, but you have people who are quite hesitant to, to come and address trauma. It's a very difficult thing. How do you sort yeah. of help someone make that step uh, when they have decided that they want to seek treatment? Yeah, I think um, a lot of encouragement and um, patience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that can be quite a challenge, especially those who've experienced interpersonal trauma, trust, mm-hmm. and um, a lot of shame is associated with those experiences. So talking about them, even acknowledging them, um, there can also be a lot of self-blame associated with those experiences. So um, kind of really trying to externalise that um, as something that happened to someone rather than them deserving yeah. it. Or, so it's um, um, you know it's not their fault that their exactly that their mum uh, was yeah, dismissive yeah, or invalidating yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. so really trying to and also I think patience is a really yeah. um, and making sure what we talk about in trauma treatment a big treatment uh, principle of treatment is empowerment so giving the choice to the individual mm. letting them guide um, their engagement just to give that sense of empowerment. Mm. And what do you find like people's experiences are going through these phases? Um, so we looked at two um, iterations, I guess, of the program. And we got, um, I did qualitative interviews with the women who participated. And it was really, really positive, um, especially the group-based. So we, the f- initial phase was 10 weeks of group treatment. And a lot of the women spoke very highly of that, I guess, um, the normalising and the connection yeah. that they can make. Um, in the group was really powerful. And I think that's um, just such a huge advantage of the group-based therapies, realising, you know, other people share that experience or kind yeah. of know, understand you uh, um, with what's going on with you. Um, and then, yeah, the individual therapy was also received, yeah, very well. I often yeah. um, find, Kat, with my own patients, that groups provoke a lot of fear. And yeah. so the fact that you've had such good outcomes, what would you yeah. say to someone who's a bit hesitant to, to join a group therapy setting? Yes. Um, I think, yeah, I definitely, can definitely understand the hesitancy, especially um, people who've experienced a lot of interpersonal trust issues. Mm-hmm. Sharing with um, others can be quite challenging. Um and I think this might be true, well, this was true of our program, is that we weren't talking and asking about traumatic experiences. We're focusing on the here and now. Mm-hmm. We're very much, it's up to you how much you would like to share, um, mm. how much you would like to engage, um, and really giving that power to the um, client. And um, I just give it a go. The other people in the group are also coming there for the same reason as you, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and it can just be such a fantastic experience did you find that they actually um connected with each other yeah yeah i think that was a um we've also found that there's this i guess a social contract that people felt oh perhaps like they wouldn't have come some weeks because they weren't feeling up to it Mm. um but because of the relationships they'd built with the other women in the group they felt okay this kind of um encouraging obligation to come to the 
group and show up for the other people as well. Wonderful, Kat. And it speaks to all of those programs like Alcoholics Anonymous, et cetera, yep. that, yeah. that, um, that group can yes. really be very, very supportive. Yes. And I know Nurse EpiPen's got a question. Fire away. So <clears throat> I have a little bit of a thing about people banting the word trauma too readily. Mm. Mm-hmm. So things shouldn't get called traumatic or that yep. was... How tra- well, that's traumatic, yeah. Yes. So, for example, if you've got screaming kids in the car and you couldn't get a car park and someone said, oh, how traumatic. Well, it was not traumatic. It was distressing or upsetting. But Yes. And it belittles the real trauma term. Yeah. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I agree. Um, trauma can be thrown quite, the word trauma or describing something as traumatic can be thrown, uh, thrown quite a lot around. Um, and I think, like you said, it does sometimes minimise um, the experiences that, although what is considered trauma can be different for everyone else, um, or different, yeah, people have different experiences or understandings of what something what might be traumatic for them. I think yeah, there is that. Um, it can have that tendency to minimise um, the, I guess, the big T traumas that we talk about or the complex trauma, perhaps. Mm. Um, yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. No, Sophie Pen. Because being a person that likes to set the scene, <laughs> I did look up definitions for trauma. Yes. So the psychological one is deep, distressing or disturbing experience. For example, a death of a child yes. or something like that. Yeah. And obviously with the ones that Belinda was speaking to about an injury yeah. um, caused by a, a, an accident or yeah. a significant injury, not yeah. Um, yeah, a the, one. And um, the DSM which is what we use to diagnose mental health disorders. Um, I can't recall the definition off the top of my head, but... Uh, you won't pass your PhD now. <laughs> Uh-oh. Dun, dun. <laughs> the experience of um, something that's life-threatening, serious or life-threatening, causing serious injury or illness. Criterion or, A. Yes, well criterion done. Well done. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it does emphasise that kind of the severity of yeah. those experiences. Mm, mm, absolutely. And Kat, you've gone on to, well, you are now a clinical psychologist registrar. Yes. And so all of these wonderful learnings you've had from your PhD, where, where is that going to take you? To the top, Dr. G-Spot, I hope. Oh. <laughs> well, I am... She's already stepping on me now, Steffi, <laughs> and I've yeah. already been surpassed. <laughs> well, I do, I'm uh, quite ambitious, I guess. Um, I would like to get to the... Um, or people might have heard of Bessel van der Kolk or Judith Herman, who are big names, particularly in the trauma field. So I'd like their Dr. Kathleen DeBoer to be um, also said in that, that kind of company. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah. So, but um, at the moment, yeah, working as a research psychologist, looking forward to branching and starting to practice um, psychology a little bit more frequently. I think that's a huge passion of mine is actually working with people, building a relationship um, and that, but... Yeah, I'll remember Triple R when I get to the top. <laughs> Thank you. So Thank I was you. just saying, because um, uh, we've got five five minutes yes. still, um, that in the, in the brief that I was reading in your mm. bio, it says you're also interested in body images, yes. imaging, and yes. and that links in with um, Professor G Spot. Yes. Um, so what 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 area 
about that do you have you been working in? Um, well, I'm very much inspired and led by Dr. G Spot. <laughs> um, you can pay me later. Though. I pay you later, sorry. <laughs> and I've got a few friends that I made during my PhD who have been incredibly influential in my understanding of body image issues and disordered eating, both who have already been on the show. Um, and so my research is not really... My past research hasn't really focused on that, but I think there's quite a lot of intersection between eating disorders and trauma um, and looking with Dr. G-Spot about, um, I guess, novel online interventions. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I have the delightful cat working across a range of my projects, and yes. I'm very, very grateful to her for her support, and mm-hmm. it's wonderful having her trauma knowledge. Yes. Yeah. And do you have the private practice? Um, no. I am looking to um, move into practicing clinically shortly mm-hmm. um but yeah hopefully i will have my own private practice in the future mm-hmm. and she will good luck in that <laughs> good sure. luck in that space thank you very much yeah. and do you mind if i segue to our favorite segment nurse EpiPen? oh uh, well i'm just i'm hoping um, it would give we need about 10 minutes for this don't we <laughs> is our, it a shaggy our, dog i think it's a i think it's a quicker one. Oh, okay 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 <laughs> So this now we come to the um, we come to the dad jokes the dad joke section of the show, of the show. our favorite our favorite segment for us and our listeners although we have had some mixed feedback at times <laughs> but I only look on the positive and we're going to hand it over to Kat to to debut the dad joke segment take it away Kat thank you very much this was a tricky one a tasteful trauma joke it was <laughs> tricky to find. Um, it might be a bit more of a millennial joke, but, and I can't claim that I wrote this myself, but here we go. Go right ahead. So the therapist says to a client, you often use humour to deflect serious trauma. The client responds, oh, well, thank you very much. The therapist <laughs> says, I didn't say that was a good thing. The client responds, what I'm hearing is you think I'm funny. Boom, Tish, <laughs> love it. That's a wonderful debut, Kat, and oh, much better than our first attempt, I said. <laughs> That, us, okay. that segment lives on. It does, and I hope it lives on forever, Nurse Epi Pen. I mean, it's doing the rounds of Monash and the Alfred, so I'm yeah. sure it'll be the world next. Absolutely. So um, in wrapping up today, I think we've had some pretty interesting discussions about we... all types of trauma and that range, that spectrum from minor to major and what goes along with those mm. the people that have um, endured those traumatic events. Indeed, Nurse EpiPen. And I just wanted to say we have been talking about some tricky things today on our show. And if any of these are affecting you or someone you care about, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Can I also, sorry, just add the Blue Knot Foundation for people who've experienced particularly complex trauma. That's a great resource mm-hmm. support service as well. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Great. I'd like to do some thank yous. Thank you, Dr. Cat, thank Professor G Spot, <laughs> Professor Panel Beater. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.